This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history. And your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Your stories about the places you live are some of our favorites. And today we have a story from where we live, right here in Oxford, Mississippi. And it's a small town, a small college town, home of Ole Miss, about an hour south of Memphis. Steve Thomas has lived in our town for over 30 years. Today he's here to share with us his story. Take it away, Faith. Steve Thomas is a magician and balloon-making expert. He goes to the local farmer's market and events here in town to make balloons for people. He's our own personal small-town celebrity. Steve has always loved magic, but his path to full-time magician and balloon artist didn't start until his 40s. Steve has had several jobs throughout his career. He started off in radio, where he worked for over 20 years. After his time in radio came to an end, he went to work for FedEx and became a dangerous goods specialist. He worked at FedEx for 14 years until one day, something happened. Just over a decade ago, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. I was at work one night and I picked up a one pound box and turned around and set it down and my shoulder popped. And that was all she wrote for the shoulder. So I ended up having really extensive four different procedures on my right shoulder. And when I got done with that, I had a little tremor. And the doctor eventually figured out what it was. And of course, FedEx said, if you can't come back to work at 100%, don't come back at all. There's several different ways um, that you can manifest the condition. It's basically your body doesn't produce enough dopamine uh, or produces too much dopamine or your dopamine receptors, the things that take it in after it's produced, don't work correctly, or the synapses that go from the muscles to the the brain don't work correctly because of the lack of that. So it's just a long process of trying to figure out what medicine to give you, whether you need more dopamine, whether you need the receptors worked on. And now they're talking about brain surgery, and, you know, I mean, I have the best brain in the world, but I only get one, and I don't want them to go digging around in there and, hook the wrong voltage battery up. It's progressive. But like my doctor said, and I've had three or four doctors because they move off. They're all neuromotor specialists. And they'll tell you Parkinson's doesn't kill you. You don't die from Parkinson's. I mean, you, you may lose the use of an arm or a leg or get tremors. And mine's unilateral. It's in the left side of my brain, which means it affects the right side of my body. Um, about 80% of it's in my arm, 20% in my leg, occasionally a little flutter in my eye. But if you meet me and watch me work, chances are if I'm not moving or doing anything, I'll have a hand in my pocket. That's to kind of hide that little tremor thing that goes on. But it gets to a lot of people, you know. Oh, my, my father was diagnosed at one point in his late years with what they thought was Parkinson's. And he cried. You know, I don't see the purpose in crying. It's non-productive. Steve was not always so relaxed in his response to life. I've always, well, I, you got to realize when I was a kid, I was a ball of nerves. Um, I had an ulcer when I was like six. Yeah, peptic ulcer just from worrying and stress. I learned early on, worrying doesn't change anything. 
It's not going to change the outcome of anything. Just do what you're going to do and be who you're going to be. Bleeding ulcer will do that for you. When they start talking about you got to take this medicine as long as you have it, and I think you know that was a long time ago. I'm sure it may not have even been what, what the doctor said it was, but you, know, you just can't let it get to you. I mean, if if you're going to spend your day that would be an otherwise good day worrying about how tomorrow is going to be, then you just screwed up today. I, I guess I can talk about Parkinson's patients because I am one. You know, relax. I mean, I, I know people who've had Parkinson's two years. And they can't get up out of a wheelchair. And I, you know, mine is minimal. My progression is very minimal. Um, if it hadn't been for the results of a DAT scan, I don't think the doctor would even admit that I had it. But it showed up. You know, they inject you with some radioactive stuff and then stick in a CAT scan machine. After he was diagnosed with Parkinson's, he left FedEx and returned to something he was familiar with magic. I've actually been doing magic and entertaining people for 44 years now. And when I was a kid, I did shows. did my first show when I was nine. It was a paid thing. Um, I remember because my my buddy and I performed together and we told her it was $5. And she gave us each $5. Well, we thought we'd hit a gold mine if you get paid twice as much as you're, you're expecting. So I uh, did that for a while, and then I packed away all the magic when I got into the radio thing because that, you know, I was up at 3 o'clock every morning. And um, after I got married or met my I was after I met my wife. I was at my father's house, and I went in his storage shed, and there's all this magic stuff. I thought, well, why don't I start using some of this? So it went from, you know, a liquor store cardboard box full of magic stuff to, um, I have a thousand square feet in my house now that's nothing but magic. Everything on the walls, you know, everything decorating, all the books, 12 bookcases full of magic books. And somewhere along in there while I was entertaining it, because I did 12 years at Pizza Hut restaurants for kids' night, um, somewhere in there I decided to take up balloon art because they wanted something more conducive to littler kids. So I started doing that probably... 15, 16 years ago. And you've been listening to Steve Thomas, and he's our local celebrity, the magician, the guy who shows up at the parties, entertains the kids. Everybody knows him in town. Struck with Parkinson, a tough disease. He said, I didn't see the purpose in crying. It's nonproductive. And he knew a lot about the kind of person who worries himself to death because he was that person when he was younger. When we come back, more of Steve Thomas's story. And again, if you have a... Steve Thomas-like story in your neighborhood, and you do, uh, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. These are the kind of stories we bring you each and every day. More of Steve Thomas's life, small-town life here in Oxford, Mississippi, here on Our American Stories.
And we return to Our American Stories and to Steve Thomas's story, our local magician and balloon art expert. Let's return to Faith and continue this story. When Steve was young, he had to read a lot of books in order to learn about magic. You would go to the library and you'd check out whatever magic book you could find and you'd absorb everything in that. And um, after you've covered all the magic books, even back then there wasn't much to do, especially here. Um, There's a magic shop in Memphis. My parents would take me there occasionally and I would learn a couple things from one of the guys working there and work on those. Now I have kids who come over to my house for magic tutoring and magic lessons. Kind of, I guess what comes around goes around. And I'm glad to see some kids getting into magic. Steve performs for all ages, but he has his favorites. You know, there's nothing better than a birthday party for like a 50-year-old lady. And everybody's having a good time. And you can just do things because you don't, with people that age, you don't have to worry about comprehension. Whereas if you have a group of 50 kids and there's some three and four and five-year-olds in there, there's a little comprehension issue. You have to keep gear things toward the, the younger audience. And, you know, I do that. Well, I'm, I live just to make kids smile and laugh. Throughout his magic career, Steve's son and daughter have played roles in some of his shows. There are many times he's taken a show on the road, which provided some great quality time for Steve and his son. Everywhere from furthest north I've been is New London, Missouri. Furthest south is New Orleans and any state in between there. Um, I'm getting kind of old and I'm not big on that, you know, two weeks away from home thing. But we used to do library shows every summer. We would book two weeks and every day we would have two shows in two different towns. And my son and I would load up all our stuff and we'd go out go to the town, get a hotel room, go set up the stuff at the library, go have dinner, go home, go back to the hotel, go to sleep, get up the next day, do the show, move on to the next town. Some of our best times and some of the uh, most interesting conversations we've ever had. Yeah, because my son could come up with some lines that would crack you up. He's a hilarious human being. Some of our funniest moments were in New Orleans. One I distinctly remember, he was 11. And I scheduled a meeting with a friend of mine who also does balloons, and he's a clown, and he's goofy. So we're in this little hole-in-the-wall, like, five-table bar, middle of the day, and we start doing balloons. There's a big pile of balloons on the table, and this drunk blonde girl comes up and says, oh, do you two do balloons? And I looked at my friend, and he looked at me, and we just shook our heads. But uh, so we made some balloons for her, and she gave us a bunch of money. And my son's sitting there being real quiet. So she came time to leave for her to leave. And she walked up and she gave us some more money. And she had a basketball pick sheet. And I don't know the first thing about sports. I know football is the one that's pointy on the ends. That's the only thing I know. But she came up and she said, I need somebody to help me with this basketball pick sheet. Can you help me in? My buddy Joe, he didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about it. I said, here's your man right here. Pointing at my son, he's 11. So he BS'd her along with the best of them. And she gave him some money. And she said, my son's 11. She's college. She said, well, I don't know how I could ever thank you. And he looked her square in the eye and he said, how about you give me your phone number? 
And I was speechless. And that's very rare for me to be speechless. I said, boy, what did you say? You were 11 years old. He said, can't hurt to ask. After living in Oxford for so many years and doing magic and balloon art for parties throughout that time, Steve is widely recognized. I met Steve at the coffee shop on the square here in town. If you go there often enough, you'll begin to see a lot of the same people. And there are always kids in there, and they're always coming up to the table talking to me, and they're always waving at me from across the room. And I think that's great. I love making friends, and, and I've seen these kids grow up. I get p- parents who come up to me and say, Oh, yeah, you did my birthday party when I was five. This is my little girl. She's seven. We want to see if you can come do her party. So along with making me feel really old, it makes me feel good that they remember who I am and what I do. Some people who are children's entertainers talk about, oh, the kids are so bad. The kids are so bad. What do you do to keep the kids in line while you're doing shows? What are some of your techniques? Well, my technique is I'm six foot three and I weigh 265 pounds. And I've developed this little goatee that has a purpose. Makes you look a little more grown up. Um, I have an earring in each ear, which I guess makes the kids think you're not like a normal, you're not like dad. So they, they tend to act right. Of course, before our conversation was over, I had to ask Steve to make a balloon for me. He carries balloons with him all the time. And of course I carry balloons with him. Let's, what do we have here? Let's see what happens. Oh, perfect, perfect. And if you ever see me in the coffee shop, whip out a bag of balloons. I'm trying to cheer up a kid who looks like he's having a bad day. And that's another thing that most people don't realize is people see me do balloons and I mouth inflate. Um, Most people don't because it takes a lot of lung power to blow up one of these balloons. And I have uh, apnea. So I sleep with a breathing machine every night. Well, in one of my pulmonologist meetings or appointments, I asked, I told the doctor what I do. And he's like, well, let's test you out. So he tested out my lung capacity. And I have almost double the lung capacity and lung strength from doing this. So you take the green one and you twist it and you twist it and you twist it. I can give you a ballooning lesson. Next time I see you in the coffee shop, I'll bring out a bag of balloons. It looks less creepy if somebody's sitting there with you doing it. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are fantastic with balloons. I have friends all over the world who can make life-size motorcycles. And, well, that's great, but that takes like three days. Um, I would rather make something quick and easy and... I think my entertainment value comes more in the interaction between me and the child or the parents than it does the fact that your balloon looks exactly like, you know, Ronald Reagan or whoever, whatever you're trying to make. (laughs) Then you take the heart, stretch the heart, tweak the heart. And people watch me do balloons a lot of times. They'll, they'll I'll carry on a conversation the same time I'm doing it. You're, like, you're not even watching what you're doing. Anything I make, I can make behind my back or without looking at what I'm doing. 
Ta-da! And this goes on your arm. I'll save it for you. I won't walk out with it. And, you know, that will put a smile on a teacher's face, a child's face, a mom's face. Doesn't matter, 80-year-old lady. I think it's that you can be creative with them. But, you know, if you give a just a round balloon, and I don't recommend doing this because even I have my limitations. Uh, I won't do a balloon for anybody under four because of the whole choking hazard. Um, if I know the child and I know that they're not going to, they're smart enough to not be sticking their fist in their mouth, I'll do a balloon for them. But if you give like a five-year-old a round balloon, just a round balloon with no picture on it or anything, they'll play with it until it pops. They'll play with it for hours. And I don't know what it is. Just, what do they say? It's a, uh, it's a gift. It's a bag of my breath. That's our local magician and balloon art expert, Steve Thomas. And I'm Faith Buchanan for Our American Stories. It's just a bag of my breath. Uh, it's much more than that. Any of us could try this. I've tried a hundred times. In fact, this year, I now have a new New Year's resolution. It's to get Steve Thomas to teach me how to do balloons. I live just to make kids smile and laugh, he said. And I try to cheer up a kid who's having a bad day. Uh, a great story about a guy who deals with, well, a really tough and slow and debilitating disease called Parkinson's by ignoring it and just going on about his day, cheerfully making other people's days happier. Steve Thomas's story, a beautiful story from our small town here in Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis, a beautiful, a fantastic place to raise a family and to enjoy sports and all the things that matter in life and that are beautiful in life. And if you have a story about your town, big city, small town, something in between, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Steve Thomas's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, and of course, your stories too. And you can send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of the very best we've produced. And again, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And today we bring you the story of an unlikely friendship in the antebellum South that's at the heart of a household name the legacy that that left on a town, and a new Tennessee whiskey that commemorates it all. Jack Daniels is the oldest registered whiskey distillery in the United States and the top-selling American whiskey around the world. It's named for its founder, Jasper Jack Daniels. But this isn't the story of Jack Daniels. Well, not exactly. But it shares the same hometown of Lynchburg, Tennessee. It's the tale of two whiskeys. Uncle Nearest. And it's, it's named after this, um, this man who was the first master distiller on record in the United States who was black. 
actor Jeffrey Wright has partnered with the people behind Uncle Nearest Whiskey to tell the story behind the new spirit and its namesake. And um, there was a young boy uh, who came to work for him when he was eight years old. His mother had died when he was four months old. His father passed away at some point when he was young uh, as well. He went to work for Uncle Nearest and uh, whose services were being rented by the owner of this farm. And this young boy was a good, hard worker, and he did all these various chores, but he was curious about what Uncle Nearest did. And Uncle Nearest took him in under his wing and taught him how to be uh, a master uh, distiller. Um, So Uncle Nearest has this new bottle named after him because of it. And the young boy, his name was Jack Daniel. Uncle Nearest was founded by a woman named Fawn Weaver, right, who read the same article that I read in the New York Times about two years ago, uh, who's out in L.A., and she got on a plane and went to Lynchburg and started researching this history because she was as moved by the story as I was. It's just, I just love our history because our history is so much more complicated when the, and, and beautiful when the whole story is told, you know? And this story just is, uh, is one example of that. Nathan Nearest Green. You know, because when you, just because you were a slave didn't mean you couldn't be a genius, too. Vaughn Weaver on the story she uncovered. This is one story that refuses to die. It's literally come up probably about every decade where it's the story of Nearest Green, and and we were able to piece together that he is the first African-American master distiller. He was Jack Daniels' teacher, his mentor, his friend. The story is in around 1820 in Maryland, and a slave was born. And we don't know what happened between that time and the time we see him in a city called Lynchburg, Tennessee, around the mid-1850s. And he's the, the head distiller at this farm for a preacher and a distiller. And this guy has to make a decision. Do I continue to be in the whiskey business? And my church is telling me you have to choose. You have to be a preacher, you have to be a distiller. And so he chose being a preacher, Mm -hmm. but he still wanted to make money. So he allowed the still to be run solely by an African-American man. That did not happen. There was always a white boss. And so around the middle of the 1850s, a, a young, kid comes who lost his mother at four months old, a white kid, and he shows up and he's a chore boy. He is not a privileged kid. He is not someone who is higher than nearest. He found comfort in, as you will, as a teacher, as a mentor, just happened to be African-American. It's one of those great stories that out of the ugliest time in American history arises a beautiful story. And fast forward, He wants to learn the whiskey business, and Nearest takes him under his wing and begins to teach this young white kid how to do whiskey Mm -hmm. his way. And essentially, the only difference between bourbon, which most people know, and Tennessee whiskey, is the process that Nearest taught. So Nearest's whiskey was the best in the land because of a process that more likely than not came from West Africa, which is a a filtering through charcoal, through sugar maple charcoal. And, and so once it goes through there, it just makes a superior whiskey. Not much is known about Nathan Nearest Green, but we do know that when Jack opened the doors to his distillery in 1866, Nearest was there. 
So he was free. He was Jack's first master distiller. We know that he was the master distiller until at least 1881, where the first Jack Daniel distillery is located. So it's about 313 acres where Jack grew up, where nearest taught Jack, where the original still, where the water still flows and all the rest of that, we own that. So that 313 acre property and, and the home and the old still and all the rest of that stuff. Jack was a good dude and he had a great relationship with nearest and nearest's boys. Not only was he paid to run his distillery, but he was the wealthiest African-American in the area. He, his boys, his kids, his grandkids, his great grandkids. You could go through Lynchburg and I can point out all the land that they owned. It wasn't small. In this case, no, no credit was stolen. I will be, I can confirm that because every single day, a day doesn't go by where I am not on the phone, on text, on email with Nearest's family. And the thing that they are very clear about is Nearest's name was not forgotten because of that white young boy who everyone else now knows to be Jack Daniel. His real name mm. is Jasper Newton Daniel. Mm -hmm. uh, in Lynchburg, we all call him Uncle Jack. But it is, his family is very clear in wanting to make sure that in this process of honoring Nearest, that we do not forget that Jack honored Nearest when he was alive. Nearest and his boys were mentioned 50 times in Jack's biography. Fawn Weaver's business partner and entertainment mogul, Kenny Burns. The story of Uncle Nearest is not a super divided story. No. It's not a super no. blacks got treated so bad, right? No. Mm -hmm. The community in which they live, and of course things happen. That was the era, that was the norm, right? But the story in which was gonna make an incredible movie is that this was a very close-knit community that really yeah. loved each other, you know? And it's, it's amazing to hear stories like this because these aren't the stories we hear from that era. I met with, I interviewed over 100 people for this, descendants of both Jack and Nearest, and every elder African-American, and by elder I mean like 75 and up, and there's a lot of them there, surprisingly, every single one that I would interview and say, when you talk about race relations when you were growing up, would you say it was like 60-40, 70-30, 80-20 in terms of negative to pos or positive to negative? Every single one said 90-10. 90 positive, 10 negative. You're talking about people that are 70, 80, right. 90 years old. It's easier to tell a story that's negative because the stories that are positive are nuanced. And no one wants nuance. Everyone wants 140 characters. And what a story that was we just listened to. And so true those words are. It's easier to tell a story that's negative. If it bleeds, it leads. And as you can tell from our American stories, we do the opposite. And we'll leave others to handle those kinds of stories. Race relations were 90% positive and 10% negative. And here on Our American Stories, we think that there are so many good stories like this all over the country, not just now, but in our history, that that's what we're sticking to. And Uncle Nearest and Tennessee Whiskey, a story you don't hear anywhere else, on the radio, on podcasts. And again, send your stories to us. And again, it could be something you've stumbled onto that you think we should be covering. It just doesn't have to be your personal narrative. Let us know you're our eyes and our ears. And of course, you're our listeners too. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of Uncle Nearest, Tennessee Whiskey. Used to spend my nights out in There was 
from reaching for the bottom and brought me back be it too far gone your ass it's Tennessee whiskey This is Our American Stories, where we love to tell you stories about everything. And one of our favorite segments, and yours too, is our This Day in History segment, as always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. Go to hillsdale.edu and learn more. They have terrific and free online courses there. And today, our This Day in History, well, it's all about a story and a product that was launched in 2007. On January 9th, 2007, Apple co-founder Steve Jobs, already a legendary pitchman, put on what many considered the best business presentation in corporate history. Here's technology commentator Charlie Brown. Steve Jobs was a master at teasing new technology to people. And everyone turned up to Macworld thinking they were seeing a new iPod or a new Mac. He was showing them something vastly different, something new and something that was going to change the world. And he did it like the master that he was. This is a day I've been looking forward to for two and a half years. At the Macworld conference in San Francisco, Jobs built up the narrative before he even mentioned a new product. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. 1984, we introduced the Macintosh. It didn't just change Apple, it changed the whole computer industry. In 2001, we introduced the first iPod. And it didn't just change the way we all listen to music, it changed the entire music industry. Well, today, we're introducing three revolutionary products of this class. Jobs was famous for adding one more thing at the end of his keynotes. In his 2007 iPhone presentation, he put the twist at the beginning. The following excerpt is the most viewed and maybe the most memorable part of the iPhone presentation. The first one is a widescreen iPod with touch controls. The second is a revolutionary mobile phone. And the third is a breakthrough internet communications device. So, three things. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod. A phone, 
you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. Every great story has a villain or a conflict in need of a resolution. In the 2007 iPhone keynote, Jobs showed several competing smartphones and pointed out their weaknesses, and then showed how the iPhone solved all their issues. Now, here's four smartphones, right? Motorola Q, the BlackBerry, Palm Treo, Nokia E62, the usual suspects. And the problem with them is really sort of in the bottom 40 there. <laughs> they all have these keyboards that are there whether you need them or not to be there. And they all have these control buttons that are fixed in plastic and are the same for every application. Well, every application wants a slightly different user interface, a slightly optimized set of buttons just for it. And what happens if you think of a great idea six months from now? You can't run around and add a button to these things. They're already shipped. Well, how do you solve this? Hmm. It turns out we have solved it. We solved it in computers 20 years ago. We solved it with a bitmap screen that could display anything we want, put any user interface up, and a pointing device. We solved it with the mouse, right? We solved this problem. So how are we going to take this to a mobile device? Well, what we're going to do is get rid of all these buttons and just make a giant screen. A giant screen. Now, how are we going to communicate this? We don't want to carry around a mouse, right? So what are we going to do? Oh, a stylus, right? We're going to use a stylus. No. <laughs> no. Who wants a stylus? You have to get them and put them away and you lose them. Yuck. Nobody wants a stylus. So let's not use a stylus. We're going to use the best pointing device in the world. We're going to use a pointing device that we're all born with. We're born with 10 of them. We're going to use our fingers. It's easy to forget how funny Jobs could be on stage. His iPhone launch presentation elicited a laugh from the audience 51 times. Here's one of those times during the iPhone Maps pitch. Starbucks. So I'm going to search for Starbucks. And sure enough, there's all the Starbucks. Now, I can get a list of Starbucks here. So I can pick that one if I want. And I can even go look at that Starbucks. And there it is. And let's give him a call. Yes, I'd like to order 4,000 lattes to go, please. No, just kidding. Wrong number. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Today we look back, and it all looks so easy. But the launch of one of the best-selling products of all time was expected by many to go disastrously wrong and take Apple's fortunes along with it. Here's iPhone co-creator Andy Grignon. Every single time he touched the screen, we're waiting for the music to stop playing. We're waiting for the browser to just go white. I mean, there's all sorts of things that we knew were, could happen. I've got playlists here. I can go into my playlists. I've got artists. I've got songs. The stress level is through the roof. You've never seen behind stage a more angsty, <laughs> miserable group of people. Job's team is stressed for good reason. 
Up until this point, the iPhone had never made it without a glitch through all the trial tests and practice presentations. We had a very careful path. It was called the golden path that Steve had to follow. He had to do exactly these things in exactly this order. And if he didn't, it could crash. What the audience didn't know was to avoid these crashes, there are several iPhones in Jobs' lectern with Jobs discreetly switching between them. It would take a magician to figure out how he did it. Here's magician Penn Gillette. He was doing switches. He would switch one iPhone for the other so he could show off different apps when they actually couldn't change. But even with the multiple hidden iPhones, Andy Grignot and his team of engineers who watched backstage expected the worst. Grignot came prepared, especially for that grand finale crank call to Starbucks. I could play with this for a long time. I just anticipated all this going wrong. So on my drive, uh, I brought with me a bottle of scotch. And what we decided to do is every one of us who was responsible for a certain part of the demo, whether it was playing some music, showing the maps, whoever was responsible for that part would take a shot. Problem was, I'd been involved for all of them. By the time Steve does the big finale, I'm completely wasted. He's got, at this point, maps going, there's paused music. All the software is lit up on this phone. So I'm going to search for Starbucks, and sure enough, there's all the Starbucks. Things could go just absolutely sideways. And I can even go look at that Starbucks, and there it is, and let's give him a call. Maybe the whole thing was just going to just go black and then restart. We didn't know. It was the first time any of us as a group saw just a perfect demo. I mean, we'd never seen the whole thing go off without a hitch. Five months after Steve Jobs' presentation, as customers waited in line for days, the iPhone hit the shelves in the United States. This is going to be like going down in the history of all cell phones. To see the line of people snaking around the building, waiting to hand over $700 plus for a phone that we had just created, was the time where it really kind of hit home for me. Steve, I love you! How's the smartphone changed our lives? It's changed everything. Everything is trackable, filmable, shareable, um... You can use it for basically any function that you want to do. You can do it better by using a smartphone. The device is still Apple's most important product in their arsenal of cultural and technological must-have items. Today's app economy is bigger than Hollywood, and WhatsApp, Snapchat, Uber, Tinder, and more are essential parts of modern culture collectively used by hundreds of millions of people every day. But before the iPhone, none of that existed. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great work as always, and thanks to the folks at Hillsdale College, who, by the way, teach things like the fact that intellectual property rights, well, they're in the Constitution and they're in Article 1, and this innovation is not possible without that. And what free enterprise does for the world and for human progress. By the way, that clapping you kept hearing, that was not your typical corporate meeting and corporate launch, was it, folks? On this day in history in 2007, the iPhone is launched and changed the world. This is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Indeed, our next story comes to us from a listener in Tampa, Florida, who follows the show on WHFS 1010, and also on podcast. Here's Jeanette's story. Well, it's actually the story of her father, Angelo Constantine. Oh, how we silently groaned when our dad got started on his war stories. He would go for hours telling us every little detail. If our eye contact drifted off, he would tap us to bring us back to full focused attention. Sometimes he would digress. What was that cook's name? Anderson? Sergeant Jones? No, he wasn't the cook. And who was the mess officer now? We would listen as Dad made his way back to the main storyline. Lipon, Greek word for so then. He would say, to make a long story short, and we would think, too late. But we always continued listening respectfully because through these stories, we got a glimpse of our dad's heart, and that meant the world to us. And the best part, at the end of the story, he would jump up and go prepare an amazing meal for us, showing his love for us through his actions. Born on August 17, 1917 in New York City, his father and pregnant mother had just immigrated from Greece and he was born shortly after their arrival. He was the firstborn of eight siblings. His family moved to Norfolk, Virginia in 1919 in hopes of finding a job in the bustling Navy town. Growing up in the early 20s, charming little Angelo would stand outside his dad's restaurant on Navy payday directing sailors to where they could find a good time, hoping to get a small tip so he could contribute to his family needs. You see, Dad would tell us, the restaurant never made any money. It was enough to feed us and the patrons, but never enough to save anything. That's why I had to work for other Greeks, to bring in some money. I started young. Did I ever tell you about how I roasted peanuts for Mr. Galanidis? Ten or twelve years old, hotter than Hades, with this big vat over gas flames. I'd turn that sucker, and then when the peanuts were cooled on the conveyor belt, I'd bag them up in ten-pound bags to deliver around the restaurants on my bike. Luckily, the leftover peanuts... I got to bag up and sell them on the street corners for five cents a bag. That was my pay. Wet, hot, cold, in all kinds of weather, there I was while others were out playing ball. Later in high school, Angelo worked at a drugstore soda shop. Before school, he opened up and made breakfast for the local businessmen and returned after school to work as a soda jerk. Angelo overbecame the shame and embarrassment of waiting on those more fortunate classmates by instead 
turning the preparation of food into an art. Angelo began his military career in the National Guard of Virginia. A group of his Greek buddies were already signed up, and he would tell us, "Now let me see. There was Tony Cahayas, Jimmy Theodosius, Nick Bertakis, Pete Pappas, and my best friend, that lousy George Bacalus. He didn't sign up. He stayed back and ran the hot dog stand." Angelo wanted to serve his country and bring in some extra money to support his family. By this time, his father had passed away, leaving him to care for his widowed mother, who spoke very little English, and his eight younger siblings, seven of whom were sisters. In June 1941, the unit was called to active duty and was assigned to the 176th. Field Artillery Battalion. Dad was able to purchase a modest home for his family, and he sent his entire paycheck to his mother, keeping only a few dollars for himself each month. While working on a school project, his grandson Sam interviewed his papu about his World War II days. Just notice the details of his answer. Before we went to Europe, we were sent to Fort George G. Meade near Baltimore, Maryland. Fort Meade was a big army camp under construction. We had plain wooden barracks, two floors, and special rooms for the senior members. The higher rank you were, the more plush your room was. Now it, it may have been those plush rooms that inspired Dad. To apply to officer candidate school, getting accepted was a huge turning point in his life. On November twenty-six, nineteen forty-two, our dad would proudly tell us, "Angelo Constantine proudly received his commission as a second lieutenant in the United States Army." For the first time in his life, he was now giving orders. And his confidence soared. And you're listening to the story of Angelo Constantine. And my goodness, to be born in 1917 means you're being born and living straight through the heart of the Great Depression. So what he knew as a young man, and what so beautifully is captured here by his daughter Jeanette, is this guy knew nothing but work and hard times. And finally, through the military, gets to serve, gets to become a commissioned officer. And finally, for the first time in his life, as she said, he's giving orders; he's not taking them. And my goodness, as we think about today's times and how quote hard they are, you just gotta laugh because what this guy lived through, what the greatest generation lived through, was the Great Depression and World War II. Pretty tough. And listen to the ebullience in the voice and the and the positive nature of this story. And we're gonna hear more of this remarkable listener's story, Jeanette's story of her father, Angelo Constantine. Their stories, both of them, here on our American stories.
And we continue here with Our American Stories and Jeanette's story. She's sharing the story of her father, Angelo Constantine. And again, Jeanette's from Tampa, Florida, and she listens to our show on WHFS 1010. Let's continue with this remarkable story. Dad is now about to enter, well, the greatest war, not just of the 20th century, but of all time, the war to save civilization from the Nazi menace. In a letter to his future bride, he writes of his first assignment as an officer. As to what I'm doing and where I'm stationed, I couldn't ask for better. I'm at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I've been assigned to a colored regiment of heavy artillery, and everything is working out swell. I'm gradually getting used to being a second lieutenant, although down deep inside of me, I'm still the same old fella you used to know. Imagine being a brand new officer as a Greek-American immigrant, whose life up to that point had shared many of the same experiences as his all-black enlisted troops. Although he rarely spoke of it, as a Greek, he also had experienced discrimination. On Christmas Eve, 1942, Angelo volunteered to stay on base and pull duty so that others could go home for Christmas. In his letter, he writes, That's one thing this man's army has taught me, and that is to think of the others in my shoes. We have all tried to make the men under us feel at home, even if it did inconvenience us. You know, like most kids growing up, we didn't realize these qualities in our dad. We saw him more as our own personal private drill sergeant. However, in hindsight, he taught us through his example, and for that we are now ever so thankful. During this time, Dad signed up for many different training opportunities. He went to the chemical warfare school, the bakers and cooks course, and flight school. Here are three of his stories that our family treasures. The Night on the Town. After passing a tough inspection at the chemical warfare school, the soldiers got leave and Angelo went with a couple of his buddies out on the town. He was pulled with four other GIs to be part of the floor show that evening. They gave the audience a good laugh by doing a chorus line kick to some great swing music. But just as the others were leaving the stage, the female held Angelo back and asked him to dance with her. Dad would say, Honestly, I bet my face burned red, but I didn't get cold feet. I could see my friends at the table laughing their heads off. And well, I decided to do the best I could and be a good sport about it. And just as soon as I heard the orchestra snap into a really hot, rug-hunting tune, you should have seen me go to town. Honestly, I couldn't help myself. My feet just danced, and lo and behold, you should have seen the surprise on that girl's face when I started dancing like that. And wham, more of the audience went wild. It was an awful noise they made. Gosh, 
I never enjoyed myself so much in ages. Honestly, the way she looked at me when I started spinning, as in proper jitterbugging, and all the time she probably thought that I would two-step and she would just have fun making me look foolish. For us kids, hearing about this and seeing a different side of our hard-working dad was a really special story. The Mess Hall Story He told us, After the baker's cook's course, they liked me, and so they kept me on at the school as an officer in charge. We would take food out to the soldiers while they were training out in the field. Good food like beef stew, baked beans, ham, fresh green beans. You know, there were these poor folks from North Carolina standing nearby, watching the soldiers as they ate. When everyone was done and the cooks were cleaning up, they put the leftovers in the trash. The poor folks started picking through the trash to get food out. I heard my troops laughing. When I caught wind of why, I was fit to be tied. I called for the staff sergeant and demanded an explanation. And then the staff sergeant tried to challenge me. And I said, from now on, you're ordered to offer all the leftovers to those people. Dad told of his sorrow as he watched them go through the trash picking out the baked beans. He never forgot the value of compassion for human suffering and that we all could one day be that hungry person digging through the garbage. Flight School The story of Dad's disappointment in not getting his flight wings was first told to his 16-year-old grandson, Sam. We were all shocked. We never knew Dad had gone to flight school. We discovered that Dad's fear of heights did not sit well with his flight instructor's mission. He told Sam, On my first solo mission, I hit the ground and bounced 20 feet in the air. They gave you a chance to explain yourself, and I flunked that too. So I flunked the course. Hearing the disappointments in Dad's voice from failing the course saddened us, yet it helped us to understand his life choices a little bit better. It was also a great example for his two grandsons and his son-in-law as they faced their own trials while serving in the Army. In January 1944, Angelo was shipped out to England and after D-Day, he was assigned the officer in charge of the convoy trucks, which carried the big guns. In the middle of the night, he walked alone in all kinds of weather down unknown roads using only a map and a compass to search for the intersections, going from checkpoint to checkpoint with orders in hand to give them any changes in the route that the trucks would take the next day. The army could not use radios for fear of the German interception. What tenacity that must have taken for our father to travel down those frozen dark roads wondering if any minute a German soldier would be there waiting. Yet knowing that this small mission, a message to the checkpoints, could change the course of a battle 
if not delivered. And remember George Backless, Angelo's Greek buddy who could not enlist? He ran a small hot dog stand in Norfolk by the city hall, and so he wrote to George saying, What I wouldn't give right now for some backless hot dogs. I bet I could eat six of them. As soon as George read Angelo's letter, he took six hot dogs hot off the grill, put them in buns with the works, mustard, ketchup, onions, and chili, boxed them up, and immediately mailed them to Angelo. Several months later, Angelo received a package from home, excitedly thinking they might be some of his mom's Greek pastries. He opened it and saw six smelly, moldy, backless hot dogs. Angelo would laugh each time he told this story. These hot dogs are like George, rotten to the core. You know, growing up, We thought Dad was not a real World War II hero because of his stories were not like the stories of the heroes on TV. But we were sure proud when he told us about capturing a German soldier. And you've been listening to Jeanette sharing the story of her father, Angelo Constantine, one of our many really beautiful listener-generated stories. And my goodness, there were so many heroes overseas and here all a part of the effort, from the mess hall straight to logistics, people risking their lives, supporting the guys on the front line. And she's right, there are so many different kinds of heroism, and the kind on TV, it's not the only kind. Also that a father would share his disappointments and his failures with his kids. The best thing you can do in life, folks, share those disappointments and those failures with your kids because they're going to have them too. And you live beyond them. You live beyond them. Jeanette's story, her father's story, Angelo Constantine's continues here on Our American Stories. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. continue with our American stories and Jeanette sharing the story of her father, Angelo Constantine. Let's continue. Growing up, we thought Dad was not a real World War II hero because of his stories were not like the stories of the heroes on TV. But we were sure proud when he told us about capturing a German soldier. Angelo and two other soldiers were on a recon mission where they would go ahead of the convoy to make sure the area was cleared of Germans after the town had been secured. As they came into the village, Angelo went to the outhouse and upon opening the door, saw a German officer. Our dad said he didn't know who was more afraid. 
But he, Angelo had the advantage, and so he captured the soldier. The German, in broken English, begged Angelo not to shoot because he had a wife and family back home. He could see the German officer shaking and sweating, so he took the Luger and turned him over to the authorities. But before that, he took a photograph of capturing the soldier. After the Battle of the Bulge, leave was granted to his unit. Dad had two weeks, so he did what many GIs did at that time. He got married to his longtime Greek beauty, Athanasia. However, upon his return to Europe, he soon found out that he was separated from his unit and had to make his way back to Germany on his own for fear that he would be declared AWOL. He made his way into central Germany by meeting up with a European mailman. Angelo chatted and discovered that the mailman was going straight to where he was headed, which was near the Czechoslovakian border. So he bummed a ride with him. Finally, after a little over two months, Angelo found his unit at Bivouac. So he went up to central headquarters. The officer in charge of the camp said, What the hell are you doing here, Lieutenant Constantine? I was ordered to remove you from my roster months ago. While Angelo was waiting for orders to return to the States, he was given the job of a lifetime by the commanding officer to transport some crates to the finance office headquarters in Frankfurt. Here is Angelo retelling the story on the Larry Glick Show sometimes in the early 80s. Okay, pick it up. Hello. Hello. What's your first name? My name is Angelo. Angelo. Right. You were, uh, what, was your, what was your function in World War II? Tell me that story, Angelo. I was with uh, an artillery unit, and uh, we had arrived in Germany. Uh, this was uh, right after the, uh, the armistice was over. Right. I was suddenly given some orders by my commanding officer. Wait, right out of the blue sky, he said, I want you to take a truck and some crates and go to Frankfurt. But I took a driver and a weapons carrier. They loaded three, car- three if I recall, uh, wooden boxes, crates. And um, he said, well, when you get out of town, about three or four miles, open the first envelope, which I did. And he gave me my designation as the finance officer at Supreme Allied Headquarters in Frankfurt. And uh, we continued on. It was about an hour's drive from where we were camped. And I turned over the crates to him, and I got a receipt. I had no idea what was in the crates. They didn't open them in front of me. We got back in, my driver and I got back into the weapons carrier and hit it back. And I opened up the letter. And lo and behold, (laughs) the contents of those crates were Dutch gilders, gold bars, jewels. What if you'd open that up? What if you'd decided, what rank were you at that time? Second lieutenant. (laughs) Second lieutenant. Yes. If if you were the inquisitive type, you said, I wonder what's those... Those boxes, those crates are pretty heavy. Uh-huh. I wonder, I'd take a peek in. I've got a hammer. I'll open up that crate and see what's inside. <laughs> and then you saw it inside, Lieutenant. What do you think? You you think you would have taken a couple of gold trinkets? Mm, 
I don't think so. No, I really don't. Uh, no, I, my I, curiosity was was piqued, but I had no idea it was that worthy. You, you know that it wasn't farm tools. No, I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what, were you, what rank were you discharging? At first lieutenant. First, where did you get your commission? Now, at Fort Warren? At Fort, uh, Fort Sill. Fort Sill. Right. Well, oh, you're an artillery man. Right. Well, you're all right, Angelo. And uh, have you had a good life? A very nice one. During the war, Angelo lost his beloved mother. So after the war, when he returned home to a new bride, he had three younger siblings in his care. Gone were his hopes for his future, replaced with the burden of the lifelong responsibility of providing for his family. Dad began working for a Greek businessman, driving a Miller beer truck, and worked dutifully for 38 years, putting in 10 to 15-hour days with a minimum pay and benefits. His natural charm and the salesmanship skills he had developed as a young lad served him well over the years. He was well-respected as a businessman and was often mistaken as the owner of the company due to his dedication. Another extraordinary accomplishment is that Dad never missed Sunday church services, and he volunteered thousands of hours cooking for Greek festivals and Boy Scouts and weddings and baptisms and funerals. He faithfully loved his wife of 60-plus years and raised four children. He showed his love through action in small ways, as often as he could. He believed one did not become a man until joining the army. He believed in humbling yourself without whining or complaining, working hard and giving his all. His pride was such that he wanted each job done thoroughly and correctly, and there was only one way to do it, the right way. He was this way not because of ego, but because he always wanted to give his best effort. Mostly, Dad's stories reflected how he lived his life by placing the needs of others before his own. He wanted us to learn this through his stories. So often in today's society, we fail to honor someone like Angelo, a first-generation immigrant who asked nothing from his country, from family or from friends, and he gave everything he could. Yes, one might say he was just an ordinary World War II soldier. But those who knew him would describe him as a remarkable man and father. And what a beautiful story. And thank you so much to Jeanette honoring your father this way. How many of us can tell a story in this detail, with this detail, about our own parents? And maybe this should inspire all of us to be able to do the same. There's just so much here. Um, Never missed a Sunday at church. Volunteered relentlessly. He was so well regarded as a businessman, often mistaken as the owner of that company because he was so dedicated to that company. He believed in humbling himself. What a crazy idea. And not complaining. And by the way, there was only one way to do things, according to Angelo. And that was the right way. And by the way, we know those people in our lives, and they're a pain in the butt, right? 
but they're not really because he's not doing it because he's an egomaniac. That's not why he wanted things done the right way, but because you're supposed to and because hard work. Well, God wants us to work hard. And if you don't believe in God, well, my goodness, you should still believe in the efficacy of hard work because my goodness, what's the alternative? What is the alternative? What a beautiful story. Again, a beautiful listener story. Jeanette from WHFS 1010 in Tampa, Florida. Her father's story, Angelo Constantine's, here on Our American Stories. Jeff Daniels in the infamous toilet scene from the 1994 movie Dumb and Dumber. This is Our American Stories. And now we know you don't want to hear the most annoying sound in the world. So how about some behind-the-scenes stories about the comedy classic? Here's Greg Hengler with a story. Dumb and Dumber wasn't just a huge success, raking in almost a quarter billion dollars worldwide. It also marked the feature debut of writer-directors Peter and Bobby Farrelly, whose wildly funny There's Something About Mary even outgrossed Dumb and Dumber in 1998. But it all began with Harry and Lloyd. Here's Dumb and Dumber producer Charles Wessler. Uh, give or take 90, uh, 1990 or 91, uh, Bennett and Pete Fairley came into my office with holding a script in their hand called Dumb and Dumber. And they said, this is the funniest movie. We really love it. We really have a lot of confidence that it's going to be really great. And would you read it? And I took it home that night and I read it. And I remember I laughed out loud a lot. I like it a lot. Uh-oh. And of course I called him up and said, look, I, I really, really would like to be involved in this. It's okay! as a producer, and they said, great, let's try to do that together, and that set our, our sort of new relationship. And um, it just got turned down and turned down and turned down by every studio and every executive. I can't even see it. Come And we didn't get, like, no, you know, thank you very much for submitting your script. Uh, it was a very interesting screenplay. I got calls from executives saying, what a piece of crap. You are one pathetic loser. Why would you send me this? No offense. <laughs> no, none taken. Finally, like two years go by, and we're 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 all broke. I'm gonna go to the store. Yeah. Okay, just get the bare essentials. This is the last of our dough. In the meantime, while we're failing miserably, I had breakfast with Brad Cravoy about a completely separate issue. And Brad, I asked him what he was doing. He's he was financing low-budget movies. Here's producers Brad Cravoy and Steven Stabler. I'll never ever forget reading the screenplay because it was the very first time I read something that made me want to piss in my pants. I was laughing so hard. 
So Brad brought the script back to the office. We all kind of looked at it, and I remember to this day that it was the funniest script that I ever read and the script that I laughed the most out loud as I was reading. So that night, midnight, I called up Charlie. I said, we got to meet first thing tomorrow morning. Come in. We're doing this movie. Charlie came in, and that's when I met Peter and Bobby Fairley for the first time. It's our big chance, man. <laughs> but during the meeting, Peter and Bobby Fairley started acting out the parts of Harry and Lloyd. And it was really funny. We guaranteed that we would make the movie for $2 million or less. And we started to cast the movie. We went to Steve Martin, he said no. We went to Martin Short, he said no. The film finally started to come together when we started to talk to New Line Cinema. How about a hug? And they, they had a really interesting attitude over there. Uh, Mike DeLuca kind of liked the script. Bob Shea did not like the script, but I guess they liked it enough that if they could get the right cast, they, they said they would make it. And we came up with a list of about 25 actors. And they said, if you can get two of these actors from this list of 25, we'll green light Dumb and Dumber. So you're telling me there's a chance. And uh, what we discovered was of the 25 odd actors on that list, not one said yes. New Line came back and said, look, we just finished shooting a movie called The Mask, and we love Jim Carrey. <laughs> Ace Ventura had not come out yet, so he was pretty much unknown at that point. But if you get Jim Carrey in this movie, we'll make it. We were told that we could close a deal with Jim Carrey for a million dollars any time up until the Friday that Ace Ventura opened. And in our brilliance, we didn't close that deal because he was only a TV star. Monday morning, we called up Jim Carrey's agent, and we said, okay, Let's get our contract on. Hold on, sugar. Daddy's got a sweet tooth tonight. And they said, well, we have a little, little problem since Friday. Now you have to ask yourself one question. I said, okay. Do I feel lucky? What's it going to take? Here's Wessler and Jeff Daniels. New line. We said, finally, you know, get Jim Carrey. We got Jim Carrey. And then Pete said, Okay, I want Jeff Daniels for the other part. There was just something about it. I remember reading the script with this friend of mine, and I was going to go read for it. And uh, um, I said, is this, is this funny? And I told him about the tongue on the pole scene. Are you okay? Oh, yeah. I got to do this all the time. He goes, yeah, that, that's, that's funny. Snowball in the head. He, he goes, yeah, that's, that's funny. Sitting on a toilet. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Hmm. And they said... No, Jeff Daniels isn't funny. I mean, he's a good actor, but he's not funny. Ah! So I had three agents on the phone. Two out of three guys were going, this will ruin your career. This is the end of everything. We cannot recommend more strongly that you do not do this movie. Ah! And the guy in New York, Paul Martino, I've been with since for 27 years, and Paul was the only one who said, do the movie. It's funny. Shake it off, man. Go back. One of the things they said was that Jim is going to walk all over you. I'm going, okay, well, but what about the toilet scene? What about the tongue on the pole scene? What about the snowball in the head? He's not in those scenes. So even if he is that kind of guy, which I can react to, give me a little credit, um, there's the three scenes he's not even in. Put out the vibe. And then what Jim said was great. Jim said, this is a buddy-buddy movie, and I really want an actor across from me, somebody that I can react to and that will give and take. He really didn't want another comedian 
who would just wait for Jim to finish and then try to top him. And we were reading the, uh, the hot tub scene. My hair was long, so I just kind of did this with the hair and, you know, just kind of, you know, did that. And Jim got this smile on his face. This is the life. Pete and Bobby fairly said, we knew before you guys even said a word. You know, Jim and I worked a little bit together, and, and I was, you know, I, I was having trouble getting a handle on it. How far have we gone? Jim kind of knew it and understood it. And According to this map, about an inch and a half. And how much farther we got to go? Eventually, I, I just, you know. Two feet. I just said, okay, what would it be like to have an IQ of nine? And we are going to need a smaller map, but we're never going to get there. And, you know, and so just to play the reality of that, which is all actor crap, but, you know, instead of trying to be dumb, why don't you just be that stupid? You know, so it just, I just, it literally it was, I would shake my head, you know, and, and like slosh my brain around before takes just to try to empty out any degree of intelligence that I may have had as a person. You don't comment on it. You aren't trying to be funny. You just are that stupid. Tic-tac, sir. Okay, it's a funny script, but then we're stuck with the Pete Fairley, Bob Fairley. Get the hell out of here. The idea was to just go ahead and shoot it. It's just they always, how far can we go? Where's the line? Let's cross it. The Fairley brothers are like that. They're this constant kind of searching for what's, would it be funnier if we came in having a sword fight? And then, hat, boom, boom, ow, and all that stuff. It just kept adding and adding and adding. We try to shoot the first two takes of any given setup script and then we'll say oh guys go crazy do whatever you want we got it and we know we got it in the can why don't you guys go ahead and do whatever the hell you want now, Jim Carrey is such a talented comedian and understands humor so perfectly that he gave up the best part in the screenplay so that Jeff Daniels could play it cool and that's the true spirit of a brilliant comedian whatever all the stuff that Jeff does is really funny. In fact, if you look at the movie, the fact is, I think he gets half the laughs, and Jim gets half the laughs. But it comes from a different place. When they finally got on the set, it was sort of perfect, because they got along great. Thank you, my good man. There was no competition for who was going to be funnier, or who was going to be, uh, who was going to get the, the, the goofy line. You know, when you're working with Jim, you've got so much to bounce off of and react to. and. He's such a gifted comedian. He's so smart. He's so precise. Want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? Somebody to react to that and bounce off of that. It was easy. I mean, he made it easy. It was all about whatever happens, keep going, because it could be great. Here's Stabler and actress Victoria Rowell. There's an old saying, a movie's never as good as its dailies or as bad as its first cut. But you get a feeling, and the feeling on the set as we were making Dumb and Dumber is that we were making something that was going to be really good and that we were going to be really proud of. Well, Dumb and Dumber is an anomaly. I mean, no one quite understands how such juvenile humor attracts the CEO of a corporation. And they're not ashamed to tell you that they love Dumb and Dumber. Clint Eastwood came up to me and said that happened to him. That toilet scene, he was dating some girl, he really wanted to impress her, he'd eaten the wrong thing at lunch, he got to her house to pick her up for dinner or to go out or whatever, and he needed to find the bathroom now. And to have somebody like Clint, Clint Stature, tell you that story, and I guess it's nice to know that the movie connected with him as well. 
I knew we were on to something at least unique. I had no idea that it would be received and enjoyed by so many people so many years down the road. Um, and that's a great thing, you know. The last time I looked, the Greeks were holding up two masks. And comedy should be on an equal level with drama. It really should. And whether you're sitting on a toilet or, you know, doing Shakespeare, funny is funny. And great job, as always, to Greg Hangler. The making of Dumb and Dumber, here on Our American Stories.